In a world full of competing ideologies and worldviews, all of which are antithetical to the gospel, how do we live in this world both faithfully to God and his truth and graciously toward the people that we live alongside? How do we live in this world that there's ideologies and worldviews, many of them, and all of them are hostile to the Christian worldview? And how do we live here in such a way that we are faithful to God and his truth and that we are gracious to the people in our neighborhoods, our homes, the people that we live with. Both of these things must be kept in tension or held on to for to truly be faithful to God. He calls us to be gracious to people, doesn't he? And to be gracious to people and love the people the way Jesus taught us to is to be faithful to God in every way. When we become Christians, we approach the world, I think, like Frodo, the, uh, the hobbit in the, in the Lord of the Rings, as he was on his way home to the Shire after his epic journey. Toward the end of the trilogy of books, Lord of the Rings, after the adventure of a lifetime, Gandalf and Frodo are talking, They're on their way back to the Shire, which is the home of the hobbits. And with all that had happened, Frodo bears his heart to Gandalf and he says this, There is no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not be the same. And then he says this, because I will not be the same. It will not be the same to go back to the Shire because I am not the same. It will be different because I'm different. When we become Christians, we just cannot approach life in this world the way that we once did or the way that everybody else does. We may live in the same house. We may go to the same job. We may do a lot of the same things, activities. But things are different. And it's because we are different. Things have changed because we have changed. Something fundamental has changed inside of us and we just can't, we can't go on like we always did. What changes or what things have changed or need to change? Well, to answer that, we need to look at Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17. Athens was an amazing city. Though its glory days may, be in the, may have been in the past at this time, one, one historian said that the sun was setting on Athens' glory. It still was living in the glory of its past. And it was no doubt the cultural capital of the Roman Empire and probably of the entire world. The architecture was beautiful. The history was world-renowned. Athens had no equal in many ways. It was unequal. And yet Paul did not go to Athens as a tourist or as a Rhodes Scholar. He went there as a missionary. He went there as a missionary. And right there, we're going to unpack this, but right there, that's the key to us living in this world with all of its competing ideologies and worldviews in a faithful way to God and in a loving way to people is having a missionary mindset. Paul went to Athens on a mission, on Christ's mission, faithful to God in his truth and full of compassion for the people who lived there. 
So let's see what we can learn from Paul under three headings, okay? I want to look at three headings and what we can learn from Paul and his travel, his time in Athens. First, let's look at what he saw. Next, let's look at how he felt. And finally, let's look at what he did about it. So what he saw, how he felt, and what he did about it, okay, in his time in Athens. First, what Paul saw. We need to learn to see like Paul saw. Verse 16, it says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy, Silas, and the others at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul came into the town, this this amazing town, and what he observed was breathtaking. It was amazing. But it wasn't the architecture. What Paul observed in in the city of Athens, did you catch it in verse 16? What he saw was the idolatry. That there were idols everywhere. It's not an exaggeration that the city was full of idols. In fact, it may not go far enough. Our English translations may not do justice to what it's meant to communicate. In the Greek, it literally means that the city was underneath the idols. It was like buried underneath a gazillion idols. The city was full of idolatry. It might be more accurate to say that Athens was smothered in idolatry or smothered in idols or swamped in idols. Paul was so taken back by this city that was utterly submerged in its idol worship. It amazed him. One historian, kind of tongue-in-cheek, said at this time in Athens, it was easier to find a god than to find a man. There were so many gods in Athens. Now, we would be gravely mistaken to think that idolatry is something that only ancient societies struggled with or that only primitive cultures still struggle with, like some people, some place, you know, undeveloped area of the world, they struggle with idolatry. It's not true. If idolatry is exchanging the worship of the glorious creator for the worship of created things, as Paul says in Romans 1.25, then idolatry is not a bygone problem for some primitive peoples. It is a fundamental human problem. John Calvin, in his large work, The Institute, said, Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. What he meant by that was our fallen human hearts. I mean, isn't that, what an image, right? Fallen human hearts are these factories constantly creating new objects of worship. It's interesting. Paul recognized that the, the, the Athenians, that they were worshiping. Worship was taking place in Athens. And that, that's, right? I mean, we all are worshipers. The question is, what do we worship? So worship was taking place in Athens. He says, I see you are very religious. Did you guys pick up on that? You're very religious. He says, you even worship 
I see all your objects of worship. You even, you even worship a God that you say is unknown. There's massive worship going on in, in Athens. Paul saw the Athenians submerged in a swamp of idols, worshiping these false gods. You see, human beings are created to worship. We're created in God's image, and so we're created to be worshiping beings. Certainly the Athenians were worshipers, and here's the thing, so are we. We all are worshipers. The question is, who or what do we worship? Tim Keller, in his book called Counterfeit Gods, says this, what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Now, if you stop there, most of us here would say, well, yeah, of course, nothing's more important than God. But then he goes on, he digs a little deeper. He says this, it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's what an idol is. John Stott in his commentary on Acts 17 said, any person or thing that occupies the place which God alone should occupy is an idol. In other words, idols are substitute gods and functional saviors that displace the true God in the human heart. That's what they are. I need this to live, right? Building your identity on something or someone. Paul, rather succinctly in Ephesians 5, 5, simply says covetousness is idolatry. You know that old saying, got to keep up with the Joneses. It's idolatry, right? What, What do the Joneses have? I need that too. What do my friends have? I need that too. Paul says that is idolatry. So we realize, I hope, that this is not a problem somewhere else for some group of people, but it's a problem. It's a problem right here. So it's a problem in, in, in Ankeny. It's a problem in my neighborhood, in my home, and in my heart. Think of the things that we make massive in our lives. These are some things that came to mind. The need for approval. The desire to be liked. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I mean, if somebody didn't want to be like, you'd see that as a problem. But, but the desire, the need for approval that, that drives some people. Comfort and ease. Oh my goodness. I was reading this book on parenting teens by a guy named Paul Tripp. And there's this chapter. I'm like, I thought this was on parenting teens. You know, but he's addressing the parents. I'm like, Okay. And it said, one of the idols that parents struggle with that are, that are parenting teens is the, the idol of comfort. This is probably for parents of any age kids, but like we think that life should just be comfortable. And when you have kids, you just realize a lot of comforts just go out the, the window. I mean, they're just gone. You don't have them anymore. And it's not just raising kids, of course, but comfort and ease. The relentless pursuit of success. The desire to to do your job well and and advance in your business is good. That's a good thing. But when it becomes a relentless pursuit 
to make a name for yourself. Money and possessions, sex, pleasure, food, sports, and allegiance to a certain sports team, education, your spouse, your children, your family, an addiction, whether it be alcohol, porn, drugs, whatever, hobbies and entertainment. We live in such an entertainment society right now. I'm just going to let you in on some. Okay, we were watching a movie a couple weeks ago. And so so we're watching a movie as a family on the TV. And then I have my laptop on my lap. And then I have my smartphone next to me. I mean, it dawned on me as I was doing this. I was like, what am I doing? I'm receiving entertainment here. I'm receiving entertainment here. And I got this right here just in case I need more. It's like crazy, right? Politics. We just came out of a busy political season. I thought, okay, the vote is over. Let's move on. Nope. Can't do that. It's life for some people. It's crazy. The list could go on and on. We live in a world full of idols. The question is, Paul saw them in Athens. They were statues, right? They were altars that were built for Athena, the goddess of victory, right? There were were statues built. So it's a little harder for us to see them perhaps, but do we see them? Do we see them? May God help us to see. But it's not just enough to see the idols. We also want to feel the way Paul felt. So, so we, we, wanna, we see what Paul saw, but w- let's also look at how Paul felt. Verse 16, again, it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, it says he saw these idols and his spirit was provoked within him. How did Paul feel? He was provoked in his spirit. He was deeply bothered by what he saw. The NIV says he was greatly distressed. Some have suggested that that Paul was angry, and I think that's maybe part of it, but I, I don't think that's all. In fact, when we see Paul addressing the people of Athens, we don't see someone who's raging with anger. The Greek word that's translated provoked is paroxuno. There's an English word that's based off of this. We don't use it very often. It's paroxysm. Has ever heard that before? Uh, it's a word used, it means seizure. I think what it's communicating is that Paul had a, an outburst or a violent reaction of emotion to what he saw. It really bothered him. I think how Paul felt was there was this holy jealousy that rose up in him. He saw all of this idolatry and he was provoked to jealousy. The Old Testament says God is a jealous God. I'm going through this book with my kids on the names of God. It's a great book. And the fourth or fifth one was Jehovah Kana, which means God is jealous. He is a jealous God. And when we feel What he feels, we will be jealous as well. Paul was. God doesn't have a petty jealousy of someone who's insecure. Of course not. But it's more like the jealousy of a husband whose wife is giving herself to another lover. 
There's anger, of course. But there's, it's mingled with love. That's how Paul felt. That's what Paul was feeling when he saw this idolatry. In one phrase, in this one phrase, when it says Paul was provoked in a spirit within him, I think we see the kind of man Paul was, the kind of heart that he had. And this is what God does. You know, the Christian life is not about getting a formula of how we do this or that in, in every, every kind of situation we come into. Rather, God forms and fashions us into the kinds of men and women who see like him and have his heart and feel like him. And so we, we, we approach life that way. We're not looking for this list. Oh, gosh, that's right. When this happens, what am I supposed to do? No, because we, we've connected with God and he's fashioning and forming us into the likeness of Christ. And so he changes us, and we see the kind of heart that Paul had, the kind of man he was. You see, Paul looked and saw that the people were indeed worshipers, but they weren't worshiping the true God. And so he was jealous, I think, in two ways, okay? I think he was jealous in two ways. First and foremost, he was jealous for God and his glory. God was being robbed of worship by all of this idolatry. God is worthy of worship. And all of these idols were getting the worship from these image bearers of God. It made Paul jealous. Paul says, God is to be worshipped. God himself says, and Paul knew this well, Isaiah 42, 8. God says, I give my glory to no other, nor my praise to graven images or to idols. Paul felt like the psalmist in Psalm 119, 136. There's so much in Psalm 119. Well, there's a lot of verses, but there's so much to be challenged by. This is one verse. Every time I read Psalm 119, I'm like, oh, Lord. Give me this heart more. The psalmist said this, I shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I mean, look around at how people blaspheme the name of God. And Paul, or the psalmist says, I shed streams of tears. And Paul was provoked. A missionary named Henry Martin, who was a missionary in India to Muslims, Um, I think he died like early 1800s, 1810 or 11, something like that. He said this. He said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. Now, when you hear things like that, Paul's provoked the psalmist in Psalm 119, Henry Martin. Does this just sound like hyperbole? Just exaggerated speech. It might sound like that, but I don't think it is. These men, and we could go through many other men and women in the history of the world, loved God that much. They loved him that much. For Paul, he saw these people giving their hearts to dead and deaf and blind things. He said, God deserves their worship. 
And it bothered him. It provoked him. If we think this is an overreaction, it just shows us that we don't have the same spirit and we need the same spirit that Paul had, that the psalmist had, that Henry Martin had, and many, many others. Or it might show us that we are more at home with the idols of our society than we realize. Excuse me. Oh, boy. Okay. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. Paul was provoked for God's name and God's fame, right? His heart was branded with Isaiah 26, 8. Your name and your renown are the desire of my soul, are the desire of our soul. But Paul also understood the, the cruelty of idolatry. So he, he was jealous for God, but he's also jealous for people. He understood that idolatry is absolute, it brutalizes people. The people of Athens were being, being buried under blind, deaf, impotent gods. They were worshiping created things instead of the creator God. And when people made to worship God, worship created things, gods of their own imagination, it deforms them. It twists their hearts. It twists our hearts. There's a biblical principle that no doubt Paul understood well, that people become like what they worship. Psalm 135 says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, or so do all all who worship them. Paul was jealous, not only for God's glory, which, which I think is first and foremost, but also for the people of Athens. And may God give us a holy jealousy, not only eyes to see, but a deep distress and angst that God be worshipped, certainly in our homes and in our hearts, but in our city. Remember the, the, the memory passage for this month. What is it? That all the nations would sing praises to God. That's God's purpose. That's, that's God's mission, is that all the nations would sing his praise. So Paul saw the rank idolatry and he felt a holy jealousy. And then he did something. He acted. He responded to it. What did Paul do? Here's what he did. He confronted the idolatry with truth. Really, he sets out to do some demolition work. He sets out to demolish the idols. He didn't yell and scream. In fact, verse 17 says, after he saw the idols, his spirit was provoked with him. It says, so, or therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews 
and devout persons and in the marketplace with whoever was there. So he went to the synagogue. That's what he did everywhere. And he spoke to the Jews and he spoke to the God-fearers who were there. And he spoke to them about Christ and the resurrection and he did it with a heart provoked over the idolatry. Verse 18 says, he also conversed with philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. He conversed with them and he spoke to them about Christ and the resurrection. So he reasoned and conversed. He wasn't, this is why I don't think he was just angry. He didn't just rebuke. We didn't go on a rebuking tour through Athens. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Jews and God fears. And he, and he conversed with the philosophers. And apparently he got some attention because the philosophers wanted to bring him to a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was, was the place where the cultural and intellectual elite were. This is where the, the, the culture shapers were. Okay? Verse 21 says that this was a place where they like to do nothing. Listen to this. They like to do nothing except tell and hear new things. Some things never change, right? I mean, people love novelties. Tell me something new. Show me something new. We love the new and the unusual. Well, they did back then as well. So the the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers brought Paul to the Areopagus, said, "You'll you'll have an audience here. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and began speaking. And verse 22 says, he stands up and says, Men of Athens, you are very religious. We talked about this earlier. I saw an altar to an unknown God. And then he takes the opportunity to tell them about the true God. He says, this God you worship is unknown. Let me introduce you to him. Let me tell you all about him. And in this short sermon... I don't know that these eight or nine verses was the whole sermon. Maybe it's just a snapshot. But what we see here, Paul seeks to systematically destroy their idols. Essentially, Paul seeks to demolish their man-centered religion and the gods it was built on and around. And he does so by presenting five transcendent truths about God, all of which... For us today, back at Athens in Acts 17, and ever since then, all the time in between, and to the end of the age, these five things have massive worldview consequences for Christians. Paul says these five things. He he presents these five things to the Athenians gathered at the Areopagus. One, he says, God is the creator and owner of all things. Two, he says, God is the sustainer of all life. Three, he says, God is the ruler of all nations. Four, he says, God is the judge of all the world. And five, he says, God is the hope of all mankind. Let's look at this. Let's just look one at a time at these. And I think, I think we need a reminder of these things as well. I think we need a reminder of all these things as well. Number one, God is the owner and creator, excuse me, creator and owner of all things. Verse 24 says this. Paul said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe the most radical verse in all the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What has God made? Everyone and everything. And therefore, he is the Lord, right? That's what verse 24 says. Being Lord of heaven and earth, in other words, the owner of everything, he owns you, Paul says. You belong to him. You are his. Paul knew Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. There was a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, uh, early 1900s. Interestingly, he was also the prime minister of of Holland, but he was a very well-known reformed theologian. And he has this great quote. He has this great statement. He said this, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over it all, does not cry, Mine. It all belongs to him. He is the the creator and the owner of all things. Things. That's who he is. Athens was a city full of beautiful, beautiful architecture, much of which was used to house gods. And Paul says, you didn't create him, and he does not live in man-made structures. In fact, he's the creator of everything, and he's given this world to you to be your home. You are borrowing real estate from him. Number two, Paul says, God is the sustainer of all life. Verse 25, nor is God served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Athens was a city busy day and night serving their gods, building structures for them, picking them up and moving them, They're just busy, busy, busy serving their gods. Paul says the true God is not served by human hands. Now, you're like, wait a second. I thought we're supposed to serve God. We are. But not in the way that we think we're adding anything to him or helping him do something he can't do. We don't serve God in the sense that we provide anything he lacks. He doesn't need anything from us. And that is so freeing, isn't it? Isn't it great to know that the God we worship here on Sundays together, he doesn't need anything from us. He gives us life and breath and everything we need. 1 Chronicles 29, 14, this is King David. He, uh, they took an offering for the temple his son Solomon was going to build it, but he took an offering for the temple and he is offering praise and prayer to God. And First Chronicles 29 verse 14 says this. I love this. David says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be thus able to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. What we give to God first came from God, right? First came from him. 
He is the sustainer of all life. The New Testament version of that is Romans eleven thirty three to 36, where Paul says, who is first given a gift to God that he should be repaid? The answer is no one. And then he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belong the glory forever and ever. We are utterly dependent upon God for life, breath, and everything, and he is not in the least dependent upon us for anything. Number three, Paul says God is the ruler of all nations. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. More could be said, but very shortly and very simply, you live where you live, and you live at this time in history by God's appointment. And that is true of every nation, of every people group, and of every individual. I'm going to try to do this again. Oh, boy. Okay. What's that? I don't think so. Okay. Number four, God is the judge of all the world. Verse 31 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Epicurean philosophy, which was prevalent in Athens, one of the philosophers that brought Paul to the Areopagus, that brought him there, was basically hedonistic, right? Seek pleasure. You you exist to, to find pleasure and seek pleasure. Do what makes you happy. Your pleasure is the end for which you live. If it makes you happy, it must be good. Therefore, do it, right? The hallmark version is follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. Paul demolishes this worldview. He tells them that God, the true God, has fixed a day of judgment. There's a day of reckoning coming. The day is fixed. It's been fixed for all eternity. Paul says, you're going to be there because the whole world's going to be there. No one's going to play hooky on this day. No one's going to get out of it. And you will stand before this God, this true God. You worship him as unknown. I'm telling you about him. You're going to stand before him as your righteous judge. Wow. Sober. Incredibly sober. To these people who just thought life was a party. It's just all about having fun and finding the next fun thing to do. He says, no, you will give an account of your life to this God. This, this life he's given to you as a gift, you're going to give an account for it. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 says this. Then I saw, this is John speaking. He saw this vision. I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there's no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, the books of our life, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Paul says there is a day of judgment coming. You're going to stand before this God. And people need to know this, don't they? You and I need to know this. We're accountable to God for the gift of life he's given us. The last thing Paul says is that this God, who is the creator of everything, sustainer of all life, he's the ruler of all the nations, he is the judge of all the world, I'm not going to do that, Um, he, he is also the hope of all mankind. After this daunting news of creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge, this big God who's transcendent and and we stand naked and bare before. There's got to be some good news. And there is. This God is a God of resurrection. He's a God of resurrection. Verse 31 continues. Judgment will be, this judgment we just talked about, will be by a man whom God has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. We know, of course, this man to be the God-man, Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And, and Paul doesn't, we don't see this in the text, but, but he talked about the resurrection. I think he probably talked about the death of Jesus and unpacked the resurrection for them. He's basically saying your only hope is that the one who sits as your judge is also the one who died and rose again to save you. And isn't that our hope? It's not that we won't be there on judgment day. It's that we have a strong and perfect plea, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who, who, who died and rose again, and we are clothed in his righteousness on that day. Well, Paul doesn't just give the crowd information. He also calls them to respond. All good preaching does. It calls people to respond. Verse, so, so what Paul says next, or actually it's before, but it's in light of all of these things, Paul says, therefore repent and worship and serve this God alone. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent, is what he says. The true God deserves your exclusive worship. The God they worshiped as unknown is to be known and worshiped in truth. And therefore, God commands them to repent and turn from their idols and serve and worship him alone. Paul just came from uh, to Athens from Thessalonica. Reed covered that last week. And Paul, when he wrote the letter to the church at Thessalonica, he describes their conversion this way. He says, you turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And that's really what conversion is for all of us. We turn from functional saviors, things that cannot save us, to the true God through Jesus Christ. But wait. Paul says God commands all people everywhere to repent. I love how it says, I mean, Paul is the one addressing these people, and yet he says, God commands you to repent. He doesn't just say, I command you to repent. Who's Paul, right? He's just... Just a man. He 
He says, I am speaking on behalf of God and he commands you to repent. God is speaking right now and he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice it's, it's a command, not a suggestion. Now, if you are thinking to yourself right now, this doesn't really apply to me because I did that one time. You know, I repented one time. I repented and prayed the sinner's prayer, repent, you know, repented and believed or got baptized or I believed a long time ago. I've been a Christian a long time. All of life in one sense is not being converted over and over again. I believe once you're saved, you are, God keeps you. I believe that with all my heart. But all of life in one sense is repentance and faith. It's, it's turning from things that have our hearts and turning to Christ. I, I, I tell my kids, I say, what, whatever has your heart has you, right? And so I say, so it's turning from the things that have a grip in our hearts. We went through a list earlier. We could go on and on. The, whatever has our hearts, turning from those things and turning to Christ over and over again, all of life being refreshed as we turn afresh to Jesus and receive his lavish grace and experience his lavish grace again and again. Well, as Paul concluded his talk, there was a mixed response. I think it's interesting. As soon as he started talking about the resurrection, they cut him off. All right, we're done. And some people mocked. Some people said, we want to hear you again. I don't know if that was just a platitude. I'm not sure, but they said, we want to hear again. And some people believed. One man and one woman are named Dionysius and Damaris and others. We don't know how many, doesn't say, but some people believed. So, to be faithful to God and to love people in a world with competing and even hostile worldviews to the gospel. We need to feel how Paul felt. I am so challenged by that. I want to be provoked the way that Paul was and not just be angry and get on a soapbox and just let people have it or let someone have it, right? The most fundamental prayer Jesus taught us to pray. You guys know the first request in the Lord's Prayer? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, that's, not, that's not mainly a, a praise, it's a request. It's a prayer. Jesus is teaching us to pray, Father, may your name be honored and respected and regarded as holy. The question is, does it bother us when it isn't? In our own hearts and in our homes, in our church and in our city. And in our nation and in this world, does it bother us that it isn't? But we actually need to go a step back even further. John Stott said, we do not feel as Paul felt because we do not see what he saw. We don't see what he saw. Paul, when he, when he came to Athens, he didn't just casually notice that people worshipped slightly different than him or even very different than him. The word that's translated saw what he saw. He saw that the city was full of idols. It means to observe, to think deeply about, to internalize, to consider carefully. 
and to discern. So he did all of these things. He, he looked and he saw and he thought and he internalized and he discerned the, the mass idolatry taking place. How it robbed God of glory, how it harmed people. And he did this until the fires of holy jealousy filled his heart. And that's what we need to do. But at this point, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this yesterday. And I, here's what sprang up in my mind. Gosh, that, make, that, seems, that, would see, that would make life a lot less comfortable. See what's happening in my heart right then? It's like, oh, it's being exposed right there. I want comfort. This doesn't sound comfortable. It doesn't. It's not. God is not nearly as concerned about your comfort as you are. And he may not be that concerned at all about it. I mean, eternal comfort, of course, that kind of comfort. But, but just the things that we often think we need. May God make us men and women like that, who see and feel as, act, as Paul, excuse me, see and feel and act as Paul did. And may we start here in our own hearts before we turn outward to others. I, I, really, I really hate uh, gross introspection. I think it's oppressive and bad. But there are times we need to search our hearts, without a doubt, without a doubt. But we need to start here. We need to start in our hearts, in our homes, before Gideon could be used to, to defeat the, the armies of Midian, the, the Midianites. He had to tear down the altar to Baal outside his own home. Let's close with this. You see, the, the gods of the Greco-Roman culture that Paul was addressing here, were all means to other things, right? There, was a God, there were gods and goddesses of war and victory and wisdom and fertility and sexuality and beauty, wealth, and so forth. But Jesus Christ, who is the true God, says things like this, come to me, I am the bread of life. I don't just give you bread, I am bread. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not just going to give you life. I'm not just going to kind of sprinkle some life on you. I am your life. It says, I am the light of the world. It doesn't just give us light. It doesn't just kind of shine this external light into us. He is light. He is our light. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, whoever believes in me. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I am this. I am am rivers of living water. I am all of this. In other words, when you find Jesus, your searching ends. Okay, you, you come to a destination. It doesn't, mean you don't, you don't, it doesn't mean you stop growing, but you find the true God you were made for. You find the God that your heart truly longs for. You come to a destination. St. Augustine, a long time ago, 1,600 years ago, said, God, we were made for you, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We run from one thing to the next, trying to fill our hearts. And we'll be restless to the day we die until we find rest in him. 
So today, God commands all people everywhere, including you, to repent, to turn from things that you're trusting in and giving your life to and building your identity on and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find life. Let's pray.